On today's episode of It Never Hurts to Ask, I sit down with author Lance Scott Walker. Lance has written several books on Houston hip-hop culture, uh, his first Houston rap, uh, and then he came out with Houston Rap Tapes, and his newest book, DJ Screw, A Life in Slow Revolution, really tackles the life and times of influential Houston DJ, DJ Screw. Uh, For those of you who don't know, DJ Screw pioneered techniques, which are uh, so influential you'll hear them in not just Houston hip-hop and and hip-hop, but also pop music today. So we talk about uh, his technique, his upbringing, uh, his life and struggles with drug addiction. And then we talk a little bit with Lance about Houston culture at large, as well as uh, Houston's influence on Lance growing up and what got him into uh, hip-hop journalism. I hope you enjoy. Welcome back for another episode of It Never Hurts to Ask. I'm sitting here with Lance Scott Walker, who's in town for South by Southwest. Lance is the author of several books on Houston hip-hop and Houston culture, which I'm a huge fan of. Uh, Originally, Houston rap and then Houston rap tapes, which is a bit of a uh, oral history of Houston hip-hop. And his newest book, which comes out in... What, a month or so? Two months. Two months. Is DJ Screw a life in slow revolution? So I've been pestering Lance to sit down for an episode for a couple years. COVID hit, so that slowed us down. But we finally made it happen, and I appreciate it. Welcome to the show, Lance. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So I guess, Lance, uh, we've got a lot I want to get into with you. But uh, first up, why don't you just kind of tell everyone who you are, what you've written, just give us a little bit of background on you. Well, I am a, I'm a writer and I've written four, I guess, four books now on, on Houston rap music, uh, amongst many, um, articles and, um, you know, radio shows and podcasts and that sort of thing about Houston rap in general, but kind of greater, you know, I, I wrote about a lot of different stuff before I started writing about Houston rap music. That was probably 2005. So I'm gonna get I'm I'm gonna get into to you and your interest and in what drew you into Houston hip hop here in a little bit, but uh, your new book is DJ Screw uh, a Life in Slow Revolution. So I'm trying to do two things on this podcast. I want to expose people who listen to the show who have no idea who DJ Screw is, mm-hmm. who he is, and his influence, and we'll get into that. But then I also hope to be able to get into. Houston rap for people who know Screw and appreciate him and have heard my episode with Julia Beverly on Pimp C. And so I'm trying to (laughs) go both ways. So we'll see how that goes. I guess first up, for people who have no idea who DJ Screw is, aren't familiar with hip hop or Houston culture, who was DJ Screw? DJ Screw was a DJ from Smithville, Texas, who uh, in the early 1990s in Houston, um, he'd relocated to Houston in the late 80s. Uh, developed a, took several DJ techniques that were out there and uh, really created his own, his own lane, you know, created his own style of what's, you know, what some people would call double tapping, which is, you know, having two copies of the same record on, on either turntable, one of them playing a little bit behind the other one and, and, um, you know, moving the crossfader quickly back and forth between those to, to repeat 
words or phrases or, or beats, rhythmic, you know, rhythmic inflections. Um, so that was part of what he did. But it, over time, you know, and all of this really developed over, you know, the course of years. Um, but over time, he started slowing that music down also when he made dubs of those tapes. You know, he wouldn't... A lot of people are under the impression he just dropped down the pitch control on the turntable. But really what he did was to um, record it into a tape deck and then use the pitch control in the tape deck to slow it down whenever he made the dub of it. <clears throat> so the original tape was always fast. It was always, you know, regular speed. As time went on, he started having people um, come over and freestyle on the ends of their tapes because these were personalized mix tapes. You know, people would leave him a list of what they wanted on their tape and uh, he'd call them up, you know, a couple weeks later, hey, come get your tape, you know, and, and when he was, as he was mixing the last song, he would hook up a microphone and let them do some shout outs. Over time, those shout outs developed into freestyles and over time, those freestyles developed into really long freestyles, depending on who was in there and who, you know, what their kind of freestyle capabilities were. So he'd laid down a bed, you know, of music, um, sometimes chopped, not always. Um, that's that double tapping, you know, that I refer to. And, uh, and, they, and he would pass the microphone around the room and let people go. And it wouldn't necessarily just be one person on a song. Sometimes there might be a song where he's passing the mic around the room and several people are getting on. You know, his most famous... Song June twenty seventh is a good example of that. Yeah, you know, there's a bunch of people on that song. You know, yeah. microphone just being passed around the room. For people who who don't know, June twenty seventh, it's a thirty seven thirty nine minutes. Thirty four. Is it thirty four? Well, let's see. Now, now you got me thinking. <laughs> it's over thirty minutes. I know that. Yeah, and it and it really is just one nonstop song where they're handing a microphone off for over half an hour and just guys jumping on and. Freestyling, and when we say freestyling, we don't mean the freestyles you see on YouTube these days, where it's been pre pre written. Right. These guys are making it up off the top of their head as, as they, they go. go. Yep. Um, which is incredible when mm -hmm. you hear it. Um, and June twenty seventh has become a bit of a cultural holiday in Houston and mm -hmm. Texas at large. Right. Um, and that we, was we, that was nineteen ninety six, and so by that time. The people that you heard freestyling on the tapes, some of them were getting record deals and some of them were turning into real artists who were really pursuing real careers. And uh, as this, as his popularity grew, more and more people started coming. You, you, know, you could get these tapes from his house. That was the place to get them. And so more and more people are coming to his house, lining up cars parked down the street. And, you know, eventually he um, eventually he opens his own record store on the south side of Houston and starts getting his tapes manufactured because up until that point he was just dubbing them on gray max l's now speaking of the lines outside of his his house I, i've heard that urban legend and i believe it's true where he he was popular people would come to him give him 10 20 to make him a tape and then he would start mixing tapes and people would just show up outside of his house and then that got to be people outside of his house at all hours of the day mm -hmm. so if I, I correct me on the the days if i get them mixed up but i feel like it was tuesday mornings or something that he, he, you know what? If you want your tapes, show up at my house Tuesday morning, and that's when you get your tapes. And there would be a line around the block. And as legend goes, Houston police and the DEA were watching mm -hmm. this black man's house in Third Ward, Houston, in you know early '90s, mid '90s, the drug the war on drugs, and assume, oh well, we've got a dope house situation here. Yeah, and they raided his house, thinking. We've got a dope house and then found a house with nothing but rec records and tapes and mixing equipment. Yep. 
Yeah. Did he ever, did, did he face charges for that? Did they get him on anything or was it just a... Never. No? No. Not, not, not with those. They never found anything in his house. Okay. There was nothing to find. Yeah. You know, most they could have found maybe was a sack of weed. Yeah, some weed. But, yeah, I didn't uh, know if they got petty and tried to arrest him for well, that they would have. They certainly would have. But, um, but he, was, yeah, he was careful about that. Yeah. Yeah, he was careful about that. And um, so that definitely happened. As far as it being Tuesday morning, it was, I've heard so many different uh, times. I think it shifted over time. But it was, it was generally, you know, just about every evening people would show up. And, oh, you know, really? He, and he changed the, changed the hours here and again. And it just got to be too much. Yeah. It just got to be to where it was, you know, that the police kicked in the door at least three times that I know of. Oh, it was more than once. It was definitely, I, I had heard once. it was a incident, but it happened several times. I heard three different stories. Wow. So, and of course, you never really be able to pinpoint. I know one of them was right around the time that Tupac died. Mm-hmm. I know that because somebody was telling me that, you know, they were talking about that and then it, was, it happened that night. Oh, wow. So it was right around there. And that was 96. Jeez. So, uh, yeah. And then, you know, it only got worse, you know, he, all through 97, he lived in the same house and then... In um, in ninety eight, he moved out of there. We'll we'll come back to to more nitty gritty of screw, but I I, I want to talk about. I, I feel like the title to your book is brilliant: "A Life in Slow Revolution." That slow revolution, the double meaning of it, because you've got like you like you described, his music was slowed down and it was revolving turntables, and that's how he made his music, crafted his sound. But that sound slowly morphed into Houston's greater music culture. And from there, Southern culture. And from there, hip-hop culture. And now I, I've heard, I have friends who've played me German hip-hop. Mm-hmm. And be, you'll hear it in Beyonce and Rihanna songs. You'll hear that slowed down screw influence in pop music these days beyond hip-hop and it's just completely i don't want to say taken over music culture but it has seeped into every facet of of music culture and why do you think that is what do you think resonated about screw music so much that allowed it to take hold because there's been all sorts of trends in hip-hop that were flashing the pans but screw persisted you know, it opens the music up. It, 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 what I say in the book is that it tears open the fabric of the music and, and allows it to bleed a little bit. And I think everybody can, I think that appeals to everybody. I think that everybody can, you know, say you got your favorite song and it's your favorite song and you've heard it a thousand times and you know exactly what it sounds like and you know every little corner of that song. But then you hear Screws mix of it and maybe not even necessarily Screws. I mean, of course, we're talking about the, the, the mastermind of this sound. We're talking about the, you know, the king of this sound, the creator of this sound. But how many DJs are out there doing slowed and chopped mixes? Lots, plenty, plenty. And it's a takeoff of what Screw's doing with their own style and their own feel. Just like there's a different drummer, you know, down the street, you know, with with their own sound and a different guitar player, you know, with their sound. And and it's, that was his instrument and that was how it sounded when he touched it. And nobody else can make it sound like that. They could take those same techniques and they can mix them together the same way he did, but you know they don't—they're not necessarily getting to the same place. But you know, I think it's the spirit of being able to take a song apart that appeals to a lot of people, and it, the spirit of like hearing something in a different way that opens it up and makes you hear it in a way that you never really thought before. Yeah, there's a, I believe it's a, so 
people familiar with Houston are going to know these names. People who are new. There's a, I, I don't know if you would call them disciples, but I would say the two big disciples or the two biggest followers of that style are DJ Michael 5000 Watts. Uh, you might know him from Swisha House. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike Jones, Paul Wall, uh, a lot of those guys. And then there's OG Ron C. Mm-hmm. I would say those are kind of the two... If I had to think about it in a flow chart, it would almost be DJ Screw and those two. And then from there, you've got DJ Candlestick and a, a whole bunch of yeah. other DJs from there. But OG Ron C had a, he calls his music chopped, not slopped, because mm-hmm. he doesn't want to, he's not going to put his put screw in his music yep. out of a sign of respect. But he had a Nine Inch Nails Closer uh, chopped song. And like you said, Everyone knows the I Want to Fuck You Like an Animal song, but then you hear it slowed down, and mm-hmm. it's a completely other song. It yeah. takes that song's sexuality, the eeriness, everything, and ramps it up to an 11. Mm-hmm. It's, it's something else. Um, how did... Was DJ Screw a mentor to... Uh, DJ Watts or OG Ron C or were they just fans who decided to kind of take it upon themselves? How did, how did those two in particular, did they have any relationship to DJ screw? Not a mentor. No, definitely not a mentor. You know, the DJ screw was a South side DJ. Everybody who went to his house and appeared on his tapes was from the South side. That's the way it worked in Houston in the 1990s. I'm sure you know there was a, a beef between the north side and the south side. Yeah, and Houston didn't quite have gangs the same way other cities do. It was right. a lot more of a north versus south dynamic yeah, absolutely. than neighborhoods or blocks per se or yeah. gangs. Yeah, and which persisted through really most of the 90s. And, um, you know, so those guys were on the north side. You know, that, that sound is the sound of Houston. You know, everybody in Houston felt that. DJ, the DJ Screw sound really was the sound of Houston. And that's one of the reasons it appealed to Houstonians so much. It's slow, it's sluggish, just like the city, you know, in Houston, you got to drive everywhere and it's perfect driving music. You know, everybody's got a car that they're really proud of and they want, you know, they want to be blasting the really good stuff in that car. And screw tapes, you know, screw tapes are such a rarity, you know, that, um, excuse me, you let that out, right? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, screw tapes were such a rarity and they were so different and so unique because people would have their own special mixes that it, it really appealed to everybody. And so, you know, artists on the north side, you know, that appealed to them too, but they weren't getting into Screw's house, you know, and, uh, you know, they, but their audience in a lot of ways was kind of a component of the same audience, right? It's the city, you know, people on the north side liked that sound. You know, you wouldn't really be caught dead with a screw tape in your I was going to say, yeah. I, I understood that there were, people were fans, but yeah. if you were on the north side, you kept it quiet that you were a fan. You kept it quiet, exactly. Paul Wall will talk to this. He, he will be able to attest to this because he was a screw head and he had people throw throw his screw tapes out of the car. So, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, so it was something that appealed to them. And, you know, they started adopting those techniques too in the mid-90s, mid-late 90s, and uh, really had their own take on it. People on the south side didn't see it that way in the beginning. They viewed it as just they, they were just cheap like, copies. Yeah, he's just biting off of them, and um, they were calling them swisha mixes. You know, they weren't calling them screw mixes. Um, although there's, you know, there's kind of watery information as 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 far as that goes. 
uh, because Screw, at least at some point, certainly seemed to think that people were, you know, using his name, yeah. whether or not whether it was Watts or or, or Ron C or whoever. Um, I've never seen evidence that says that, but uh, anyway, uh, his so he, with with Watts, he didn't really have much of a relationship. I think they butted heads a couple times, and you know, um, but I know that OG Ron C told me about a very amicable um, a meeting between him and Screw, and I don't think they knew each other very well, but you know. When he did meet Screw, Screw had no problem with the There was side. respect. Yeah, there was respect. And I've, I've heard, if not you in podcasts, just things I've read, that DJ Screw, as a personality, very introverted, very almost, I don't want to say meek, because that's probably not the right word, but very quiet, introverted, homebody of, a, of an individual. Mm-hmm. And But he carried a lot of respect in Houston. Yeah. And his house, where they mixed most of the the freestyles, and people came to, you know, spit their rhymes on a on a tape. Even people in South Houston had beef, but under his roof, it was, was just cool. understood. Everyone gets along. Yep. None of that walks in this door. Yeah. Was that something Screw explicitly kind of enforced, or it was just? almost understood i don't want to blow my shot with this guy i've got to be respectful that all gets i think kept it, outside i think it was both but i think it was more of the latter i think it was more of people just knew that <clears throat> you know they just knew that you know you're going to go in here and you, you you act with respect yeah and i think when screw did need to say something he did you know was it you know if y'all are not going to get along you can both leave yeah you know i've heard that definitely plenty of times from a lot of people so so people a lot of people associate Houston with lean scissor mm-hmm. syrup promethazine coating cough syrup. Um, and DJ screw definitely fed into that. I don't want to call it a myth cause it wasn't a myth. It's a, a part of Houston rap culture, but there's a bit of a disagreement on how much the lean influenced screw in his music versus how much screw in his music influenced Houston culture and the lean drinking. What, what have you found in, in all of your interviews? Lean was around before screw. Yeah. Long time before screw. It was, you know, blues musicians, Zydeco musicians, people, you know, people in third world were drinking it long before screw. Um, They put it with wine coolers. They put it with beer. You know, it's an old school, Houston concoction. Um, so, but as far as screw developing his sound, not influenced by it. No, that came, that came long before he ever touched it. Yeah. Long before he ever touched it. Cause he was developing this sound really. He started slowing, you know, slowing down stuff by his own, um, recollection around 1990, 90, 91. He didn't start drinking lean till like 94. Okay. Yeah. And this is, this is based on the people who bought it around, brought it around. You know, like, you know, like Screw didn't, we didn't touch Lean until Screw was at the house on Greenstone. Okay. Which is the house where he did most of his work. That's the the wood paneled house you see in a lot That's of the That's the one with the wood room. Yeah, exactly right there on the cover of the book. Yeah. 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 So, you know, it, he didn't touch it till then and that wasn't until 94. So, you know, that's that's two or three or four years of, of him working on this sound um, and where, where Codeine is not involved. How... So DJ Screw passed away in 2000, mm-hmm. um, and I've heard in various interviews, it, it sounds like 
his his friends, rappers, started to get concerned with his workload and his drug use towards the end there. Mm-hmm. Was there any attempt at an intervention? Not an intervention per se, but or was it just let the man work? How did that transpire? Or was it just that's the genius doing his thing and it's kind of an unspoken thing? It was, I think it was a little bit of everything, but I don't think anybody... I don't think anybody thought it was that bad. Yeah. You know, put it this way. Like there was nobody else. There were, there were no other codeine related deaths. Yeah. There was none of that. You know, there, there'd been some people who, you know, who had from the screwed up click or around the screwed up click who died for different reasons, murders and that sort of thing, but not like that. So screw was really the wake up call. So I don't think anybody ever thought that codeine could kill you. And really, you know, with screw, it wasn't, just it wasn't really it, you can't overdose on codeine it just doesn't no. it you know it doesn't stay in your system long enough it's yeah. just you know you can't overdose on it but it will exacerbate pre-existing health issues yeah. and screw had pre-existing health issues because he had an enlarged heart and he was overweight he didn't exercise he had a bad diet and he didn't sleep yeah I, so add all those things together and um, you know not a good recipe yeah I've I've heard stories that he would fall asleep at the turntables mm-hmm. standing up. Oh yeah. And then he would just kind of wake up and go right back to right it. back on beat. Oh, yeah. on beat. On I had beat. heard that for that's oh, yeah. great. Oh yeah. <laughs> Multiple stories people told me he kind of fall asleep and then wake up before he, you know, wouldn't fall over or anything. He'd just kind of wake up while he was still standing there and then and then get right back on beat. One of uh fans of this show, people who know me, know that I am first and foremost a giant UGK fan. They are my favorite music group of all time, and they always will be. I want to talk a little bit about the relationship between UGK and DJ Screw. UGK had a great sound prior to really linking up as much with DJ Screw, Too Hard to Swallow, uh, Super Type. But then 1996, they definitely had sat down and collaborate. I don't, I don't know if collaborate is the right, right word for Riding Dirty. And their sound from that record forward, you could hear them be a kind of an instrumental, very musically inclined rap group with Pimpsey's production to Pimpsey really kind of folding that DJ screw sound and culture into mm-hmm. a lot of the sound moving forward. Was that a was that a conscious decision from Pimpsey and D- DJ Screw? Were the two of them friends? Did they work together and, and Pimpsey wanted to kind of go in that direction? How did, do you have any yeah, insight yeah. on how that relationship R- Ride and began? Dirty, and yeah. Ride and Dirty was supposed to sound like a screw tape. It was supposed to have the same sort of feel as a screw tape. So it was heavily, heavily influenced by screw tapes. Um, and as a matter of fact, you know, around that same time that it was released, they went to Screw's house and recorded a screw tape yep. based off of those beats. Um, but his relationship with UGK goes way back further than that. Really? He broke Tell Me Something Good. Screw broke Tell Me Something Good because, you know, Pimpsey walked in, Pimpsey and Bumby walked into King's Flea Market in Houston where Big Time Records, was, which was a record shop, yep. was set up. And there was a sign up that said, I want to produce a, a hip hop record. And they were the first ones who walked into that shop and said, well, we got one. And so... He ended up, you know, so Russell Washington from Big Time Records ended up releasing Tell Me Something Good on a 12-inch. And 
DJ Screws, it wasn't really a manager for him. There was a guy named Charles Washington who was doing some things with Screw. He was kept kind of helping promote Screw, and he had got Screw involved in some different projects. And um, he was he was pushing that. You know, he gave that that final to Screw, or I think maybe Russell gave it to him. I don't know. There's a couple of different. I know Bun gave him one too. Yep. You know, so that, that definitely at, at some point Screw got his hands on it, and Screw was DJing at a place called uh, Club New Jack around that time, and that's where that's where Screw broke that record. So, you know, Screw being out and being like really kind of a club DJ around that time, you know, 91, 92, that era, um, you know, that became part of what he was playing, you know. And back then, you know, there was no Shazam. There was no way to find out what anything was. You know, DJ Cool Herc used to famously hide his records. He didn't want anybody to see what he was playing, you know, because you would go and you'd find stuff. And so that was a, a sound that people associated with DJ Screw because he was the one who broke that record in Houston. Yeah. And then, you know, it spread from there. And of course that was crazy song that, you know, everybody was in love with, you know, and that was a Houston, that was a Houston sound. That was a Southern sound. And it was a lot of people's introduction to UGK, but for a lot of people that introduction came through DJ screw. Yeah. And DJ screw, uh, in Houston in the South, DJ screw was almost a, a jumping off point, an introduction point to a lot of people to a lot of different East Coast and West Coast rap. Oh, they yeah. didn't hear East Coast rap unless it was on a screw tape right. a lot of the time. They would get their cultural exposure mm-hmm. through whatever it was DJ Screw thought was cool and wanted to do right. to, uh, to mix. What... What was it that screw is drawn to in a song do you have any insight into that because i've i've heard Mm -hmm. i don't know how many screw tapes and mixes and songs over the years and i can't really find a common denominator that i can pick out Mm -hmm. so i've wondered if you've you've heard anything about what drove his musical tastes i think it was all over the place i think that um i think there were definitely musical things that he was looking for. I think there were a lot of rhythmic things that he was looking for. And, um, you know, he was obviously hearing stuff a lot different than, than other people, Yeah, you know? Um, but I think that just as much as that were lyrical things that he was looking for. And there's no better evidence of that than, you know, listening to the songs where he's winding back the lyrics. Yeah. He wants you to hear this, you know, and maybe that's because to him at the same time, the music's jamming, but other times it's just cause like he, like, I want you to hear, what they're saying right here. Yeah. You know, screw, you know, was very much a big brother to a lot of people. You know, a lot of people looked at him as that, that kind of big homie. And so I think that, um, you know, the message that was coming out in his music was really important to him. So, you know, I don't think it's really possible to pinpoint, you know, any, any kind of one thing that pulled him towards something. I think it was a lot of things, you know, he had a very, very rich musical diet when he was growing up. His mother bought lots of records. She played lots of records around the house all kinds of, you know, late seventies funk and, and R and B and, you know, so, and, and you hear that as those are a lot of times beds, you know, he, he uses as a bed for freestyles later on, you know, down the line, you know, you know, Anita Ward and SOS band and that kind of stuff like that yeah. stuff he was hearing while he was growing up. And in some cases, you know, records he took from his mother <laughs> and, and carried with him, you know, I've one, I don't know why I find it so silly and fun, but he, he does a uh, he chops and screws 
uh, Phil Collins uh, in the air tonight. Right, as if you needed to slow that down. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, and yeah. then you got that that break for the drum, and I swear to go, it goes on for yeah. eight minutes before he finally gets to it. Yeah, and he just has this. Sometimes it's almost it almost seems like you can feel him smiling, like you're almost in on a joke with yeah, some yeah. of the songs. Uh-huh. He'll he'll chop and screw in the way he plays with it. Yeah. Um, and then other times it's just this song's all right, but I'm going to make this song awesome. Yeah. Um, and it's just it's it's masterful to hear. Um, I'm sure you get talked to about DJ Screw by a lot of people who maybe are interested in you and your writing but don't know DJ Screw at all. Um, do you ever get asked, well, if I'm going to listen to him, if I'm going to check him out, what do you recommend? Mm-hmm. Or for people listening to this who've never listened to a song or a, a mixtape or an album by DJ Screw, what, would, what are your two or three songs, your two or three tapes or albums you recommend Well, as an intro to him? Three in the Morning is a good one. You know, because three in the morning, um, number one, it's accessible. People can get it. It was actually cleared and released on a real label. You know, most of Screw's tapes are undergrounds. Yeah. You know, they're not cleared. He doesn't have permission to to use the songs. You know, the thing is, record labels got to the point where they realized, hey, if he puts those songs on his tapes, we sell records. So don't go after him. And they just started sending him records. So far be it from people suing him because he hadn't cleared stuff, people were sending him records. But Three in the Morning was the first, um, it wasn't actually the first album he did in the studio. All Screwed Up is the first one he did in the studio. But uh, Three in the Morning was the first one where he really kind of had his run of things. He used four turntables. Oh, wow. You know, he, 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 spent, he spent a lot of time in the studio with a good producer, with Maestro, and was able to really get down exactly what he wanted to do. Um, and that's not to say that the screw tapes are any, they, they are more raw than that album. Yeah. Um, but, you know, some of them are borderline unlistenable to just because they've been dubbed oh, so many times. Oh, because or, the sound, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but I'm talking about his performance as, no. a, as a DJ. Yeah. You know, I mean, his his skills, were, it, it's just amazing to me what he can do in the moment like that. And so when he had time to go in the studio and maybe, oh, let me maybe give me another take on that one, you know, he could really, really sharpen up a song and just really, really dig into it in a really unique way and really take his time because... So many screw tapes were on the fly. They yeah. were live but for, for, you know, they're they basically live. And uh, so for him to take, be able to take some time in the studio and really get deep into some tracks and really think about them and, you know, three in the morning, I think is a good introduction and it's got local guys on it. That's, that's the most important thing. You know, it's, it's a really, and all screwed up is the same way, um, you know, and uh, so is all work, no play. You know, those are all local Houston artists on, on, you know, one of, some of them on Jam Down, some of them on Big Time, different different releases. But, um, you know, to hear him mix local voices, I think that's a good start. You know, people can, you can go and you can listen to him mixing Tupac and Sibo and, you know, Spice One and plenty of his other favorite rappers in the world. But it's really, you know, I think there's something special about hearing him, hearing him mix rappers from Houston. So I usually tell people three in the morning, all screwed up is another great one, same kind of deal. Um, all work, no play, but all of the tapes are great. They're just, you know, they're, they're, they're deep, they're long, long tapes and there's yep. a lot of stuff to get into. And like I said, it's very raw. Have you listened to all of the screw tapes? No, no, no. I've, I close, close. Really? Yeah. yeah. I, I feel like I've got a bigger collection and I've listened to more than most. You probably definitely even more than me, but you still come across something somebody will upload something on YouTube or, 
you'll just come across one random song mm-hmm. and you're like, well, now I got to go find that tape yeah, yeah. and dig into it. What's, what are your favorite screw just completely unrelated to introducing it to anybody? If you're going to sit down mm-hmm. or you're riding around and you're listening, what are your two or three favorite tapes? I love straight reckon. Um, I late, I love late night fucking yo bitch. <laughs> um, that's all R and B slowed down. Nobody's, free, yeah. nobody's freestyling on that one. That's just, is that st- the one with like TKO on it? Yeah. And Brandy. And yep. Yeah. That's, oh, that's a great one. And, um, and three in the morning. I love three in the morning. Yeah. It's it's just a, such a great listen. It's you know it's hi fi. It's just you can really blast it, and it sounds so good. But I don't know. I you know as soon as I walk out the door, I'll think of five more I should have said. But yeah. I, I I love his mixes of. But have to go you know by the song. His mix of of uh, Wild in the City by Street Military is one of my favorite things he ever did. Really? Yeah, that's a great one. I mean, my biases UGK's writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because you, True. it's they were. It came after Riding Dirty, but I guess uh-huh. before it released, right? They wanted to kind of do a... If I understood it right, they wanted to give DJ Screw a full Riding Dirty uh-huh. and, and issue a separate Riding Dirty chopped and screwed entirely. Yeah. But Jive wouldn't clear it. Is that right? They, would, they wouldn't do it. Yeah. So instead, they went over to his house... And just made a screw tape. And made yeah. a screw tape. Yeah. And you can hear them basically... You can hear them passing the microphone you you hear it better on some uh-huh. tapes than others but you can really just hear they're drinking and smoking and fucking around for who knows how many hours changing the lyrics to their own songs yep yeah and something about that is is really fun and then of course june 27th mm-hmm. um which a lot of people assume is dj screw's birthday it is not no nope. um it is um demo sherman's birthday mm-hmm. and that can you tell? Uh, I, I know I've got people who listen who are a fan of that. Can you tell people a little bit about just the backstory to that song? Because that one song and that screw tape has basically created a a holiday. Yeah. In the state of Texas, can you just tell people a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know that tape's really interesting because it has a prequel. There's a tape. There's a tape called Dance and Candy mm-hmm. that was that was Demo's tape. It was a tape. You know, Demo was was the architect of his tapes, which, you know, a lot of people were, but he was somebody who was close to screw and, you know, he could kind of say, okay, I want to come over and make a tape. And he would invite people and he would bring people. And so there was a tape called dancing candy where he had some people in the house and he, you know, they were making the tape and everything like that. And it was his, his idea for what the songs were going to be and who was going to appear on it. And he had a little bit too much drink and he felt asleep. (laughs) And so they made the tape without him. And, and then the tape came out and it was in rotation and everything. But when he woke up, you know, he's like, you know what? That's okay. We're going to do another one and we'll do it on my birthday, which is like a month or two later. He said, you know, or maybe even weeks later. I don't know. No, nobody really remembers. But it was some time later. He's like, we're going to come back on my birthday, June 27th, and we'll do another tape. And I'll bring somebody with me this time. Because there was a, there was a rapper he was trying to bring to the dance and candy session that he didn't get to bring with him. Because I can't remember. They just didn't link up. They didn't find him or anything. So by the time he comes around, for the June 27th, he brings the guy with him. He says, you know, screw, this is Youngster. And so that was Youngster's first screw tape. And he was like, wasn't he like 15 or 16? I think, he was, I think he was 16. Um, he was very young. Yeah, he was very young at that time. And, um, you know, contrary to what people think, it wasn't actually his very first appearance on a screw tape. Youngster, no, it wasn't. No. Most people don't know this, but Youngster told me this for the book, is that he was taken over to Screw's house before, I think maybe by Key C, 
because Kesey and uh, and Demo were close, and they all lived in Long Drive, which is a, a little section of apartments in in South Houston. And so Youngster was at Screw's house one time before, and it was when a mic was being passed around the room, and they just passed around the somebody passed the mic to him and just said, "No, just say your name." And he, so he just said his name, Youngster, and then the microphone kept moving. And he was so young and like you know, didn't really know what didn't didn't wasn't quite on the footing to assert himself in that situation and take that mic back and get on the on the mic, and that was it. And he didn't he maybe kind of met Screw then, but didn't really get to to meet him meet him didn't make an impression but so it was his first verse maybe was, not his first appearance it was that. not as exactly gotcha. exactly yeah yeah so it's you know it's kind of that's kind of sharpening the pencil there but you know it wasn't his ever, first ever appearance it was his first verse and when he came out of the gates he came out of the gates yeah he killed yeah, it he killed it and he just kept going forever and they just loved it yeah now, was that one thing i've always been a little unsure of it with with that song in particular being a we'll call it a 40 minute track 30 whatever mm-hmm. yeah. minute. um are there takes if you're passing the mic if you and i are at a screw you know if you and i are there mm-hmm. and they pass it to lance and lance fucks his his bars up do they stop does he cut that out or do you just and how does that work there were takes not of that song there okay. were there were takes of songs yeah there were there were times when they would do a do-over you know, which of course is crushing for the guy who just dreamed up a bunch of great stuff off the top of his head and th- felt like he nailed it. And, you know, maybe somebody else doesn't or just screwed it and get his parts right or whatever. So there were takes. Um, and little Kiki speaks to that, you know, says, oh God, you know, we have to do overs and here and there, but not with that one. That was just passing a micro mic around for 40 minutes. That was passing the mic around for 40 minutes. And so that is on the B side of that tape. You know, June 27th is a full tape. People think of June 27th as one song, uh, yeah. which it is. It is. But the tape, you know, it's a full it's a full tape. And there's another song on that tape that's a good 12 minutes long, something like that, and kind of sets the tone. Is that the freshest MCs? Yeah, the freshest MC in the yeah. world. That's exactly right. I, yeah, yeah. I love Very good. that one. That song almost puts a smile on my face mm-hmm. more than because it really is it sets a tone it sets a tone yeah. and it's not really even rapping it's and it'll happen on a lot of screw songs it's not yeah. the only one but it's just him talking it's my birthday here's who's here yeah i'm introducing everybody we're, we're thirsty yeah, yeah, yeah it's but he's not rapping yeah yeah he's just talking yeah, yeah he's just hosting and that's still a vibe that's like because so that's how good yeah. screw was yeah you could bullshit and talk mm-hmm. and i'll like i'll drive around austin with my windows down banging a guy talking mm-hmm. and i can tell i've gotten at red lights people are guy's just talking in his car what's yeah. going on but it still rides it yeah. still bangs um and i think that speaks to the brilliance of screwing the sound he made and yeah. the guys he associated with he gave he gave him room to do it was know? was screw was he more loyal to the end result in the sound or his bullet like was there and now i i'm a huge screw fan i can't pretend to keep track of the whole screwed up click and all those guys there's got to be a dozen of them at least two dozen more like three dozen four just dozen, got in it because there's guys it's, who it's will come lot, in on one or two yeah. tracks it's there's there's it there's there's many many dozens yeah because it's a lot of people who aren't even rappers yeah so i can't know. keep yeah. track of all them but uh, is there a guy who he might just suck on a mic he's just no good but dj screws like you know you you get to come you get to participate or was it a, was it a little bit more you got to bring something to the table I don't know. I can't say that. <laughs> I, and I don't want any names. I don't want you yeah, to throw yeah. anybody under the bus. Um, but 
well, have you heard you know, about anybody just not being invited back because they weren't good enough? I think it was a vibe more than anything. Yeah. You know, because I don't think anybody felt like they had to do, you know, like you said, sometimes it's somebody just talking, yeah. you know, somebody just, just talking, you know. Um, but I don't think that anybody was ever under the impression there was something that they had to accomplish or that he felt like that, you know. And who knows, you know, how many songs that were mixed that didn't end up being used. Yeah. You know, there, there, could, there could have been plenty of that when he went back and listened to well, it. Well, and back in the day, so many of these were, like you said, just personal use or, or almost fucking around, not yeah. to denigrate what he did or, or belittle it. But so I guess the skills don't matter as much because it's more about a record of the hang mm-hmm. versus we're going to make something bigger. Because I've heard, I think I've heard Kiki and others talk about it. They didn't think it was ever going to become anything. It was always yeah. more a cultural mm-hmm. experience. DJ Screw had some some clout in the city, but none of these guys at the beginning did. Yeah. So most of them didn't think anything would ever come of it. Right. What, what happened? I know DJ Screw did not have the best business acumen. I don't know if it was a lack of business acumen or it just didn't motivate him. Do you, was it a little bit of both or? I mean, you know, there's two ways of looking at that. Like he loved to make money, you know, but the thing is he was making good money for a long time, you know, and. So he didn't necessarily see the incentive or the need to make even more. He was comfortable sticking to his lane. I think that was part of it, but I also think that he rightly saw that, you know, because there were a lot of people putting pressure on, like, why don't you start a label, start a label, start a label, yeah. and then, you know, develop artists and release them. And I think that he rightly saw that as, like, a ton of work. And, you know, and, and he, didn't, he didn't necessarily want to have people under his wing. He wanted to have people on his wings. Yeah. And, and then, you know, flapping those wings and letting them go where they, where they could go. You know, I think he wanted to be a starter for people. He wanted to be, a, a, you know, something that, that kind of put people out into the world. But not necessarily like a, you know, a boss, you know, I think, I think, like I said, I think he could see that that was a lot of work that he might not have been necessarily suited for, you know? So I think in that sense, it's a really good business acumen in a way, you know, is, is no, I can make my money and still live my life to the degree I want it to. and, And knowing what fits you, knowing what works for you and knowing what's not a good fit for you. And so while, you know, for a lot of people it is, you know, it's a perfect fit for them to start a label because of the way that they want to do things. I'm organized in this way. I want to put records out. I want to produce. I want to do these things. Um, but I think for him, it was more like, no, I want to just keep making my tapes. That's what I love to do. And, you know, he'd had the experience of making albums in the studio and he knew how different that was, you know. And so then whenever you start getting into producing stuff and, you know, you know, making beats and he, he did make beats too. You know, he's not known for that, but he definitely made some beats um, over his years. I know he helped produce some with Mr. Uh, 3-2, mm-hmm. didn't he? On Wicked Buddha Baby. He... That I don't know. I thought he, he helped on that some. That might be. Yeah. I know it's that one of... Uh, that was one of the, the follow-up questions I had. For people who aren't familiar, you'll listen to his screw tape. You don't actually hear a lot of DJ Screw. No. He's not a rapper. No. He's <clears throat> he might talk on some records mm-hmm. and say a couple words, but he, he's in the background mm-hmm. largely. Um the outro to Wicked Buddha Baby 
Have you have you heard it? Yeah, but not in a long time. Okay. But it, it, <laughs> I mean, three two was my favorite rapper in the world before. Oh, that. really? Yeah, he was my favorite. That's but why he's on the cover of that book there. He uh, on the outro, it's just DJ Screw talking, and he's uh-huh. saying, "I'm going to screw the whole world right, up right, and, yeah. uh-huh. and all of this." And I just it struck me because I've heard DJ Screw will say little phrases. Mm-hmm. He'll say little things, but it's that was almost other than a couple interviews. That's some of the longest I just heard him talk uninterrupted. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, as somebody who's probably listened to more even than I have, what are some good songs if I want to hear Screw the Man? Oh, wow. That's a good question. I have, um, so of course I'm going to search my memory here. You know what? I made a mix. I made a, I made a screw mix um, that's on my SoundCloud. Did I specifically put songs on there where he talks? I'm going to pester you for that. Yeah, yeah, I'll offline. send you a link. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Do. I'll send you a link for it. Because it was one of those things I was just listening to it and, and it kind of just, I was like, oh, you don't, Yeah. you don't hear him. Yeah. You'll, you'll hear little bits. He'll say a word or uh-huh. two. But you don't really get to hear his thoughts. And that song in particular was so interesting because he seemed like such a humble guy. And he was a relatively humble oh, yeah. guy. He wasn't Definitely. super flashy. Mm-hmm. But then you got him on this track going, oh, no, I'm a screw. The-. Like, this is a thing. Oh, yeah. I'm going, like, mm-hmm. I'm on to something. And y'all will remember this. You will hear me around the world. He was right. And he was right. Yeah. And it was all on an outro to an album. Uh-huh. That a lot of people don't even listen to outros. Yeah. Um. And it just got me kind of, and I wouldn't even know where to go to start searching for where do I hear more of DJ Screw's work? Because there's not even a whole lot of interviews with him, really. There's some. There were, there were a handful of interviews with him. Yeah. Yeah. I've been through them all. Yeah. Yeah. Because I sourced them for this book. You know, this book is based on my interviews for the most part. But for, you know, I never got to meet DJ Screw. Yeah. I saw him once in person, but I never got to meet him. And so I definitely, and I wasn't a journalist. You know, I wasn't a writer when he was alive. Where, where did you, because I want to I wanna get into more your backstory, because like like me, you're a, a white guy you would, you would see on the streets, people would look at you and me and not go, yeah, he looks like a guy who really dives deep into Houston rap <laughs> right. culture and DJ Screw, and you wouldn't expect it. Right. So what drew you into Houston hip hop and DJ Screw and all that? Well... I grew up in Galveston. I'm from Galveston. Okay. So, you know, in Galveston, Galveston got all our influence from Houston. Sure. You know, people go to Galveston for the, they go to the beach and they bring their music with them. And so, <clears throat> you know, I graduated high school in 1991. So when I was in high school, Ghetto Boys broke, you know, the original Ghetto Boys, not the Willie D and Scarface Ghetto Boys. You know, that was, that was really happening. That still did happen while I was in high school. But um, I'm talking about the original Ghetto Boys when I was like a freshman in high school and Raheem and Royal Flush and Def Four and, you know, all those groups, the early Rap-A-Lot groups. I have, I don't know if I still have it. I have a, a original copy of 976 Dope. It's a great record. Yeah. It's a great record. Rick, RIP Rick Royal. He was, he was, he was a good man and uh, he was a fantastic MC. And uh, that was a great group, but very overlooked. I try to put them on my, my radio show all the time because I want people to hear Royal Flush because I think they were such... You know, those weren't even Houston guys. I'm going off totally on tangent now. No, and those were it, East Coast guys. It was going to happen. Yeah, you know, those were those were East Coast guys, but they were so Houston, and they just they just got it, and the, and, and their sound, I think. Well, and, and the East Coast has little weird ways of influencing this out. Like, oh yeah, one of the mo- mm-hmm. the Trigger Man drag uh, drag rap beat mm-hmm. 
one oh, yeah. of the most sampled beats yeah, in yeah. all of hip hop history, yeah. and especially in the South, especially New Orleans, yeah, and three six, yeah, and it's a random track from New York City, yep, yeah. So it, it has weird ways of definitely working its way down. Yeah, and the original Ghetto Boys DJ, you know, DJ Ready Red was from Jersey, you know, Prince Johnny C. So when did you get to see Screw? Oh, uh, well, it's in the book. Uh, that was in, it was in 2000. Oh. It was in 2000, okay. yeah. And I just saw him driving down the street. Oh, so you saw him. I saw him. Oh, yeah, I never got to meet him. You didn't get to see him, him perform or anything? No, I didn't get to see him perform. Okay. No, no, we were, we were in the Montrose. We were getting ready. We were off on Richmond Avenue. Was he in his Blue Impala? He was in the Blue Impala. <laughs> and somebody, you know, you can hear the music coming down the street. And I was with another guy. We were walking to a, to a bar and he goes, and they could hear it. And he goes, that's DJ Screw. I was like, oh yeah. And he goes, no, 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 that's DJ Screw. And then we look and there's the car and he's getting ready to turn. I was like, whoa, that's DJ Screw. But I didn't know what he looked like. Yeah. You know, I had no idea. You know, you just didn't, you just didn't know what he would look like. The thing I remember the most, of course I saw his face, but I remember seeing the rims and, you know, and the blue Impala and, yeah. you know, and so it was in, and everybody at the corner realized it and all were kind of watching, you know, watching him drive and he turns and kind of looks at us and takes a drag off his cigarette and then just keeps going, you know. So I never got to meet him. Um, so when you were, you know, you were big into hip hop even as a kid. I was big into hip hop starting when I was in uh, sixth grade. Yeah. 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 Roxanne Shante, UTFO, Run DMC, Fat Boys, um, you know, Slick Rig and Dougie Fresh. And that was when I was in middle school. Yeah. And so that was, you know, that was for me like the first music that kids my age owned. Yeah. You know, like what did we hear before that? I mean, you know, Billy Joel or, you know, Purple Rain was out and that was huge. And, you know, but Purple Rain was also massive on like a massive like pop level. But hip hop, you know, you got to think about like 1984, 1985 for kids like living in Galveston, Texas. And for like me, I didn't have cable TV growing up. So I didn't have MTV or anything like that. So yeah. music really came out of left field. But like the kids in my school were so enthusiastic about it and so into it. And people were have, they had boom boxes, jam boxes then. And they'd, you know, they'd bring those to school and people were break dancing outside and, you know, I'd be the little annoying white kid. What's that song? Shut up, kid. No, what's that song? You know, it's Dougie Fresh, you know. No, that's that's um, that's UTFO. That's Roxanne Shante. That's, you know, whatever it was. So this is like, you know, 85, 86 in that era. And then... I don't you know, like that you're so much older than me, but you look my age. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, so, you know, so I, I got... So that's when I got into hip hop. Yeah. And... Um, right around that same time, I heard um, Time Zone, which was Africa Bombada, and who already had Planet Rock out at that point. That was something we were hearing. And then uh, John Lydon from the Sex Pistols, which was like a mashing. It was hip it was hip hop and punk rock. And so for me, that opened up a window. I was like, whoa. And then I was really into punk rock. And so hip hop and punk rock for me, like the introduction to them was really right around the same time. Hip hop definitely came first. Yeah. But uh, those two kind of ran side by side for me, you know, in perpetuity. Um, uh, after that. But um, as far as hearing Screw, you know, I moved to Houston in 1992 and um, I didn't hear Screw right away. I don't remember hearing Screw right, right then, but like definitely within the next couple of years after that, you know, I lived in the Heights in Houston and I worked in Third Ward. And, and so, you know, you'd drive through town and you'd start hearing that and it's like, whoa, what's that? Yeah. You know, and you started picking up on it and, the, 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 you know, you know, Music sounds one way, like somebody coming down the street blasting music and they, you know, and then they pass you by and then the, the, God, what's that? You know, I write about music. I should really know what this, um, 
Are you you're not talking? I was gonna talking say, about how the sound distorts as the as the as the car moves yeah. past you, right? Doppler effect is that right? That sounds mm. too nerdy. Yeah. I know what you're talking about though. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so there's a particular way that like slowed down hip hop really, yeah. really, you know, embraces that kind of distortion of like the sound just kind of coming towards you sounding one way and then leaving you sounding and the, another. And the chopping, yeah, yeah also yeah. has mm-hmm. a way when it's driving by yeah, yeah. really exactly. So and you're hearing the voices and the voices, big gigantic voices pouring out into the street. So you can't miss it, you know. And then you just get more familiar with it, you know, over the years. And you you know it's DJ Screw, even if you don't necessarily know the artists that are on the tape, and you don't really necessarily you might not even know the songs, but sometimes you do. And then sometimes you hear a Tupac song coming down the street, and it sounds different. And you're like, wait, what? Is, I feel like I know that song. Then you realize that you do. So. So th- there was this running interest, you know, throughout the years. And then, of course, I saw him in that in person that one time. And then he, he died not too long after that. And then I saw him on the news. And it was like, oh, okay, wow, yeah. That was, that was him, you know. That, that was, you know, you, re- you see the face. You recognize him. It, you were living in Houston in 2000 when he passed away. Yeah, yeah. What was, I remember I was a little too young and I got into screw. I was big into Southern hip-hop. I was... 10, 11, when I started listening to LL Cool J Bone Thugs and all mm-hmm. that. And then it was probably 11 or 12 when a friend got me into Master P. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that was right when No Limit was at its kind of cultural mm-hmm. apex, make him say, uh, all of that. Yeah. And he released a, uh, a compilation album called, uh, oh, what was that called? Uh, the Master P released? Yeah, mm-hmm. No Limit released. It was it was a, a Dirty South compilation album. Mm-hmm. And they had a track with UGK. Mm-hmm. And something about Pimp C and all that, I was just, who are these guys? I've got to go down this rabbit hole. And it was right, right about the time Napster kind of hit the scene. Mm-hmm. And I'm 13, 12, 13-ish. So I go on that, and that's when you could hit on Napster. And I'm like, yeah. UGK, download absolutely everything they have. Yeah. And that was just kind of off. And, but then through UGK, you hear them talking about Screw. Mm-hmm. And then you hear a couple years later, that's when you start to hear some of the other Houston rappers. And it's all kind of a very meta rabbit hole of sorts yeah. um, with Houston hip hop in particular. Um, but so I remember when Pimp C, because I was a massive fan, I was in college at that point, And I remember how that hit me. And how that hit other hip hop fans in the city of Houston and Port Arthur. What was the vibe like in Houston when Screw passed away? Was he a big enough presence that it was a citywide oh, yeah. event? Oh, yeah. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, because it was, you know, you heard his tapes all over the city, you know, and, and you got to remember also that, like, you know, by that time, you know, Fat Pat was dead by that time, too. Yep. That was a big shockwave that, that went around the city. But, um, you know, also you got to think about the fact that, like, Lil Kiki was a superstar by that point, mm-hmm. you know, and UGK who were connected to Screw, they didn't come up through Screw, but you know they were they were connected to Screw were were superstars by that point. You know, Big Mo was on his way; he had just released his 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 first album, City of Syrup. You know, so you know the influence, and you if you knew that Screw was connected to all these people, you could see the you know kind of shockwaves of 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 his influence, and of, so of course the shockwave of his death, and you know. Everybody was talking about it forever. It was just really, really somber, really sad. Yeah. You know, I didn't have the perception of it then that I would years later once I really started studying, you know, Houston rap. 
I didn't have the perception of it because I just didn't know how deep his scene ran. Yeah. But I knew that I knew that it affected a lot of people. So that's something I want to get into is before you released the, this book on DJ Screw, you've got, and I've got it here in front of us, um, Houston Rap and Houston Rap Tapes. What, what was it that steered you down the path of... I, I, stop, I want to stop short of calling it an academic... Definitely not academic. Ex, ex, exploration. <laughs> not, not for but me. It's, yeah. But it's not casual. Like, it's not a cursory... A lot of hip-hop books you'll see are very surface level, very glossed over. Yeah. Yours is not that. Yeah. It is very deep. You're talking to very influential people in Houston hip hop, but then also smaller cultural players who mm-hmm. maybe people who are plugged in know who they are, but they're yeah. not who the average music fans ever going to, you know, the yeah. average music fan probably has heard of Slim Thug or Paul Wall probably, mm-hmm. especially if you're in the South, but you get into the nitty gritty with some of these guys what was it that inspired you to to tackle that and, and dive into that culture and write on it? Uh, it was the photographer, Peter Best. You see, you see his name first on that book, Houston Rap. So he, um, he and I have been friends since 1996, you know, when I was playing in punk rock bands in Houston and he was, he was just a kid, you know, he was I'm five years older than him. So, you know, I'm in my early 20s and he's like 17, 18 years old. And... Uh, or maybe even younger than that. And, you know, he's coming to the punk rock shows and taking pictures up front. And I'm, you know, like, hey, hey, kid, you know, what are you doing with those pictures? I don't, I don't know. Let me see them. You know, let's, let's check them out. And um, and I developed a friendship with him and got to know him really well. And he lived in, and he ended up moving to Austin to go to school. And then he moved around the country, actually. He moved to, I think he was in, in Chicago for a little while. He was in San Francisco. And then he ended up in London and then eventually, and I went over to see him while he was in London. We stayed in touch over the years. You know, we were kind of long distance friends, but we were always in touch. And I was going to see him when he was in Chicago and, and London and everything. And then, uh, and New York, because he eventually ended up in New York. And then in 2004, he, um, he told me, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this project on, on Houston rap music. And so I'm going to start coming to Houston more, you know. I was like, yeah, you know, come on down. You can stay with me, whatever you want to do. Let, let, you know, let, let's hang. And so he did and he started coming down. He would, he would come down for like a week and he'd go around town He'd get one number from one person and get another phone number from them. And he'd kind of started working his way through. He started with the South Park Coalition. Okay. Yeah. And so he started working his way through that. And by like the end of 2004, after he'd been working on it for, you know, I don't know, six, six months or something like that, maybe a little bit longer. He said, you know, cause I was writing for the Houston Chronicle at that point. I was already writing. I'd been writing for the Houston Press for years and I was writing for the Houston Chronicle. And he said, hey, listen, you know, I go take pictures of these guys. I, I do photo sessions and they tell me these amazing stories and my camera doesn't capture that, you know. So like, you're a writer. You should come with me. You should do this book with me. Because it was always going to be a book. Oh, wow. He was always going to be a, he was always going to do a so book. So it was almost going to be more of a photo, a photo book. It was going to be a straight photo book. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then, as he was going, he realized, no, the straight photo book's not going to do it. Mm-hmm. Like, of course it would. Yeah. With with his work, his work's amazing. It you is know, a great it, book. A, a photo book of just his work would be amazing. But he really wanted to do something, and he really wanted to do something deep, and he really wanted to do something like you said, that's not glossed over. You know, and it, you know, and so. He said, you know, there should be a, there should be a text element to this book. I don't know how it's going to work, but I know that if you start interviewing people, you're going to start hearing some amazing stories and you're going to start learning more of the history than you ever thought existed. 
and, um, you know, do, do this with me. So I said, that's a bet, you yeah. know, because I love Houston. I love Houston. From the time I grew up, was growing up in Galveston and going to Houston to go see punk rock shows and heavy metal shows and hip hop shows in the late 80s and early 90s, I fell in love with Houston. I thought it was Mecca. And Austin was its own kind of Mecca too. And I loved Austin, but I got to go to Houston more and I had more of a relationship with Houston. It's, it's funny. I, you know, living in Austin, I'm originally from Dallas, um, moved to Austin nine-ish years ago. And you've got the the boom of Austin and everyone moving here. People, oh, Austin's the best. I'm like, eh, Austin's all right. Houston's better. Everything you like about Austin, Houston's 10 times. Because people are like, oh, Austin's got so much culture. It really doesn't. You want to see culture, go to Houston. Yeah, it's The Hispanic culture, the black culture, the Asian culture. Mm-hmm. Any sense of culture you think Austin has. Um, go to restaurants where you won't see one white belt. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Uh, Houston's its own its own other world almost. Yeah, and Dallas has hints of that. And mm-hmm. Dallas is again has more diversity than Austin does. Um, and so I definitely understand your your love of Houston. It's, yeah, it really is. There's really no other city like it. No other city. That's and that's what pulled me in ultimately was that I just I love Peter. You know, he's one of my best friends. I love the guy. And, um, so of course I love the idea of doing a project with him, but it was really just about, I love Houston. Yes. I'll do this for Houston. Yeah. I'll get into, I'll get into this. So it was almost more more of a Houston love story for you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And one of the things I like about it is, and I've not read your DJ screw book yet, but we were talking about a little bit before we started recording is you don't, and I don't say this in any way negatively towards you, but you don't really let your writing do the work you let the people mm-hmm. you're interviewing oh yeah do the work you don't pull quotes and then fluff it up with your own writing no. you don't make it about you yeah you just get these incredibly amazing anecdotes and thoughts and and sound bites isn't the right word but and you you let that do so your books are, are i would say what 85 90 quotes well, Houston rap is 100%. Yeah. Uh, except for the introduction. Um, Houston rap tapes is all interviews. Um, you know, I wrote, I wrote introductions for each interview and then introductions for each section. Um, DJ Screw's a hybrid. You know, I, I do the heavy lifting as far as, you know, the structure of the story and getting you from, from here to there so we can move along. Because a straight oral history has its limitations. Yeah. You know, especially if you're only using your own interviews, which is what I did in Houston rap. But in, in for the DJ Screwbook, I wanted to be able to draw on interviews of, from other writers and other journalists, you know, that, that they'd done over the years. I never got to interview DJ Screw. So if I'm going to quote him, you know, I want to, I want to be able, I need to be able to quote from somebody else's interview and give them credit for it and that sort of stuff. So, you know, that right there kind of opened up, you know, the possibilities in the book. But like I said, I also wanted to be the storyteller that could take you from here to there but I, I really wanted the voices, the people who knew him to be the ones who were telling the story, Yeah, you know, and, and to get to a point where um, I knew them well enough and they trusted me well enough to tell me those stories and to relay those stories to me. And, you know, the more I learned about Screw over the years and the more I could kind of relay that I knew, the more trust I developed between me and the, you, you know, and you know this, and I've said this, you know, in other interviews, but your questions tell the interview subject everything they need to know about you. 
mm-hmm. you know, what, 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 you know, what the information that you load into your questions, um, to, to kind of let them know that, you know, something, um, and it also shows a respect for what's going on. You don't make them have, you're not making them have to reset all these very, very simple things. It allows them to sort of breathe and relax and then and open up into other channels to where they can kind of tell you deeper stuff. Yeah. And uh, now but, you got me over here doubting myself. What a, damn, I hope I'm well, doing an okay job. You know, but you, but you want, you, you just want, you, you want those voices. To, if DJ Screw could look down and see that there's a book about him, he would want those voices in the book. He Absolutely. would want the voices of all the people that he knew and loved. He would want those voices to be the ones who's telling the story, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I realized we've been talking for an hour and I didn't get into one of, I don't say the most important questions, but a question I probably should have gotten into early on. DJ Screw's name. Mm-hmm. I've heard a couple stories about where his name came from. Do you, do you have the definitive answer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shorty Mac named him. He, he used to take, um, this is his, his name came while he was still in Smithville. So he, he left Smithville in 1986 and came to Houston and it was 85, 86 in that era that, um, he was taking his mother's records and he was mixing on his mother's records, which like I said, were funk and blues and soul and R and B records. And, um, on some of them, and he basically just kind of took records from his mother's collection and, you know, made them part of his own. And on songs that he didn't like on certain records, he'd take like a screw and scratch that song out as in like, don't play that one. And then leave the ones that were, you know, that whatever was intact was something that, that he liked and that he wanted to mess with. And so Shorty Mac said to him when he did that one time, he said, who do you think you are, DJ Screw? And it stuck. Yeah. Yeah. That story's in the book. I and I yeah. feel like I've heard you tell that story probably, and, and yeah. I figured that was the case. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of people think it's always oh, screwing up the sound, like they think it's well, a, that's what it and beca- it kind yeah. of works that way. Yeah, yeah. That's what it became. And also, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is a uh, a DJ in Houston named Michael Price, who was murdered in 1993. But he also, um, you know, dialing it back a little bit further, there was a there was a DJ in Houston named Daryl Scott who was slowing down songs on his tapes. And he was the guy in Houston in the 1980s. Like if you, like for, for every DJ screw tape that somebody had in the 1990s driving around in the car, in the 80s, it was D. Scott tapes. It was Daryl Scott. He was a club DJ and he was a mixtape DJ. And he opened up his own shop in 1984. You know, you see the kind of template in some ways of what screw ended up doing at different times in his career and everything. And, and he did things in different ways. But, um, but Daryl Scott was, was kind of the model for, for, for DJs. And that was the hottest DJ in Houston, like, you know, in the clubs or on the tapes. And Michael Price was sort of a protege of his who loved that. He loved slowing down songs. He loved slowing down the party. And so he would play some records. He would drop the pitch down on records. Um, if he played at parties and that sort of thing. But also one of the things he did was he took a boom box and he took a screw and he, 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 he screwed a screw into the motor on the back of it and it slowed down the motor on the jam box. Really, and that's so he called it screwing the music, and it's a completely separate definition of screw, but it comes from him. Um, so, it's, you know, there's different ways of thinking about it. Kind of got know. parallel narratives going. It's a kind of a parallel narrative, you know, and you know, as is with the history of DJ Screw, you're going to hear, you know, if you do enough interviews, you're going to hear some parallel narratives, and you kind of have to make room for a couple of different things to be true at once. 
And so that's that's one case right there. DJ Screw definitely got his name before he ever got to Houston. Uh, but there was also somebody else in Houston who was doing doing something that they called Screw in the Sound. Interesting. I yeah. never knew that. Years, years later. Years later. Talking about early 90s there. Um, I've got a little bit of time left with you. Um, I wanted to kind of break away from the books um, and more just talk about your tastes and in Houston at large and Texas at large. Um, I'm curious. You mentioned early on ghetto boys. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I take you as a bit of a source on Southern hip hop and Houston hip hop. Uh, I, I've got, had a, a barbershop argument with one of my, my good friends. Um, we got into a debate about who was more influential ghetto boys or UGK. Oh, Wow. I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know, this gets into something we were talking about earlier. A, a white dude is not going to make that distinction. Yeah. You know, um, I would say, I would say this is that a lot of people think of Scarface as the greatest rapper in the world. Yeah. The greatest rapper on earth. I would not argue with that. Yeah. But a lot of people will also say that Willie D is one of the most influential. So, but also you look at Bun and Pimp and you know, you can't take anything away from them either. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I, I can't say. Yeah. You know. I uh, The thing I always, and his argument was always, well, they were first. I was like, yeah, you are. They were and, that, definitely and, that's first. In, and that's important. That were, It's a factor. They were first and they were national first. Yeah. They were, and they were international first. Yeah. Because you got to remember, like, by the time that UGK is breaking in Houston, the Ghetto Boys were worldwide. Oh, yeah. You know, Mind Playing Tricks had come out by that time. Yeah. I, the argument I was making with him was, yes. Um, and arguably the ghetto boys worldwide are bigger. Yeah. But I feel like you can hear, particularly with Pimp C's production, you hear more UGK's influence in hip hop culture at large mm-hmm. today than you would get. You hear the high or the, the hand clap snare, uh-huh. you hear trill, you hear trill everywhere. It was those two that yeah. effectively mainstream that word. Yeah. Um, ASAP Rocky to Beyonce, you hear a lot more of that influence sonically mm-hmm. with them than Ghetto Boys. Ghetto Boys kicked the door in. Yeah. But I feel like UGK's influence has has spread wider versus just being first. And yeah. well, my know, friend did not like that argument. Yeah. You know, UGK has more specific things that you can point to like that. Yeah. I will say that. They have more specific things, whereas the Ghetto Boys have a much longer career with lots of different sounds. Yeah. Like, go to listen to the first Ghetto Boys record, Car Freak. It doesn't sound anything like, you know, the the Mugshot record or, um, you know, or We Can't Be Stopped. You know, by that time, you know, they've got a much different sound. And Scarface is kind of directing more of the production. And, you know, and you got Doug King, you got Mike Dean, you know, who's producing the biggest records on earth, you know, was working with ghetto boys in the eighties and, and early nineties. And so, you know, Mike Dean's such an un, I don't want to say unsung because he's a massive name, yeah. but I don't think people realize how much he's done. Yes. Selena. And, yeah. yeah I mean, oh, I didn't know Selena. Yeah, he worked with Selena. Oh my gosh. I mean, and like, and I've been in the studio with Devin, the dude, when Mike Dean was in there, mm-hmm. it's pretty amazing to watch him work. It's really pretty amazing to watch him work. At least, you know, I, I don't know what it's like watching him now. You know, he's got different tools that, you know, it, it is discretion and everything. But, you know, I got to kind of sit in the back of the studio and just watch him work and moving from like playing keyboards and then producing and then picking up the bass and throwing something down. And it's so seamless. 
that it's one of those things that you don't, you know, that's why I say that UGK might have more specific things you can kind of point to. Oh, well, this is UGK, that's UGK. But I think that, that the Ghetto Boys influence is a lot more hidden, but 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 maybe more widespread in, in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, you said you worked with the, uh, with Houston Chronicle mm-hmm. and Houston Press. Did you, uh, I assume you knew or know Shea Serrano? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, I was, I got into the Houston press and reading a lot of Shay's material when I needed that, that Houston fix because I wasn't mm-hmm. getting it. Oh yeah. Um, are you guys still in it? Are you guys close? Do you guys work together? Is there anything? No, we don't work together. I didn't see my era at the Houston press was long before his. Oh, by the time, okay. Cause I wrote for the, the thing is back in the day, um, back in the day it was like i started writing for the houston press in 2002 and then um when i got offered a job by the chronicle the chronicle was like you write for us or you write for the houston press but not both no so that's when i left the houston press um i did do some more work for them once i moved to new york i i um i I did some more work for houston press on a freelance basis but not i was never a staff writer there I was never somebody who like went oh, okay. to the, I was never somebody who went to the Houston Press and had an office. Never. And not at any point. And not with the Chronicle either. You know, with the Chronicle I was a nightlife writer. I was a I was a staffer in the sense that I had a blog that I wrote. I wrote a nightlife blog for them and I wrote articles for them every week. Um, but I didn't have a desk there. I was a freelancer. So gotcha. it was a very it was a very rock and roll lifestyle because I worked at night. Yeah. And I could sleep late and I had to file by 2 p.m. And that's one of the things that's always interested me with with you is and I, I'm not, I can't pretend to be super well-versed in, in all of your work. I mean, Houston rap tapes excluded, hearing you on podcasts, but like following you on Instagram and just what little I've gleaned is, yeah, you, you live in New York, you're here, you're there, you travel around. Yeah, You live a, a very, uh, I don't know about, well, I guess, worldly life, but then you're also a bit of a subject matter expert in such a niche cultural yeah thing that you you've always fascinated me that you seem to to do so much while also being so plugged into to houston culture and and i appreciate um you being able to uh create a a historical record of sorts for houston um because we, it's a lot like like your books. A lot of it is oral history and stories, and you might hear this from this person and that from. It's not like L.A. hip hop, where you've got a lot more established history of right how that all went, and then death row and and all of that. Yeah, it is a little bit more. You hear this, you hear that, and you you're kind of left to put it together yourself. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is history from my perspective. I look at it as history because I'm not plugged in in the sense that like. I know everything that's going on now. Yeah. I mean, of course, just, you know, by the nature of my connections around and just the social media and stuff that I see, of course, I know what's going on in Houston. Um, but I don't follow it and I don't report on it. Yeah. You know, I play it on my radio show. You know, I'll play Don Tolliver on my radio show and, you know, Dende or whoever else, you know, we're, we're hearing, you know, Megan, Megan the Stallion. I played that early on. I thought that was amazing. And I'm so happy to see her blow up. Yeah. You know, so stuff like that. So, um, but, you know, I wouldn't consider myself plugged in in the sense that like I'm not writing really about current stuff, 
you know. So you're more a, a Houston historian of sorts than a, a Houston, I don't want to call it a reporter, but. No, I've never a reporter. Um, I don't have those skills. <laughs> but, but you know, when Peter and I started on these books, we, um, we re- rewound from that point. You know, so we started in 2005. And, well, Peter started in 2004. I started maybe late 2004, early 2005. Okay. So what happened in the spring of 2005? Everything broke. Still tipping, you know, Paul Wall, Chameleonaire, Slim Thug, Mike Jones, all that broke in like the spring, summer of 2005. So we were kind of right at the crest, right before that wave started to crest. And was there a sense that that was coming? No. Or it just, oh, this not, thing not that we've me. loved for 10, 15, 20 years is now it. Not for me. Not for me. Maybe Peter may have had a sense of that. Um, but I was just like, holy shit, man. Same. And we're both just kind of going like, whoa, look what's happening. So we were, it was, we were, I felt very blessed that we got in before that, you know, that we kind of got in under that line. Um, but also what happened with, with, cause I was still in Houston then I moved to, to New York in late 2006. So I was still in Houston for the first two years I was working on the book. I was in Houston. And so Peter and I were everywhere. Every time he'd come down, you know, we'd spend a week and we'd be out and, you know, we were in the clubs and we were very much kind of tied into exactly what was going on then. Um, but you know, at that point <clears throat> we also realized how kind of crazy it was getting and how it was sort of a gold rush. And, there were a lot of new artists popping up and, you know, there were mixtapes in our hands all the time when we went out. And we, I think without ever really actually kind of demarcating it and saying it, we both kind of thought like, we're going backwards from here. Yeah. Like I can't, we can't possibly cover what's coming out now. Yeah. It's just too gigantic of, you know, it's like this gigantic bowling ball had fallen into the bathtub and the water was everywhere. Yeah. You know, so we, um, so we rewound from that point and I've, I mostly use that as sort of my guiding principle because I just feel like 2005 back, not completely, but just more that like, I always felt like there was more foundational stuff to cover. Yeah. There's more foundational people to talk to because as you go along, you meet so many more people that you realize are like been around for a while and have really got kind of hell of a track record and you might not hear about them in the same way you do as others. So there might not be somebody that people are talking about, They've got legit careers and 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 le- real legit histories and experiences. Do you think? And this is more of my my ignorance. I'm a fan. I like I. There's East Coast rappers I like. There's West Coast. I'm a little more versed on some Southern hip hop, mm-hmm. but especially Houston. The the meta ness of Houston hip hop. The the influences. The like almost spiderweb network of influences screw to UGK who's influenced Paul Waller chameleonaire mm-hmm. and screw is influenced back. I mean, do you feel like that's more unique to Houston than other regions of hip hop? Or do you think New York or Oakland or Miami, do you think they have their own version of that? That's just not as reported yeah. or documented. I mean, I'm sure they do, but you know, also, you know, Houston is it's kind of an insular city in a lot of ways. It's a global city. Yeah. It's a very diverse city, but you know, forever, forever it was just completely ignored. You know, you had the East Coast and then eventually you had the West Coast. And, you know, you could look at other scenes like Chicago or, you know, Seattle or whatever, you know, hip hop scenes you want to talk about, Atlanta, you know, 
But in Houston, it was overlooked. And so it became more of a just, okay, well, let's focus our business here. We've got a gigantic city and lots and lots of hip hop fans and a really diverse city and we make good money here. So let's, you know, let's invest our efforts here and not maybe necessarily worry about going to New York and getting a record deal. Although there were definitely artists that did that. Yeah. Went to New York or LA and got their record deals and, you know, maybe kept in mind that like this might not last. So it was, do you think, so you're saying it's almost the fact that it took till 2005 to really blow up as a city. Yeah. That kind of kept everything. So like I just said, meta Mm -hmm. and tied in. Yeah. It was versus Atlanta had, um, Al-Qa- like it popped in the the nineties and again in the two thousands. Yeah. Miami had its thing in the early nineties. Yeah. So you're saying the fact that they blew so early, almost kind of, I don't want to say blew up that history with it, but it didn't get to cook as long as Houston's. It definitely didn't get to cook as long as Houston's. Yeah. You know. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, part. and you know, but also like think about two thousand four, two thousand five. What else happened? You know, MySpace. You know. Napster, you know, LimeWire, all this kind of file trading, people, people stop buying records the same way, you know? So you're looking at kind of that last gasp, you know, when, when Peter and I started working on the books, one of the things we were documenting was like a lot of guys that we were talking to, their, their changeover from like being, you know, businessmen and women who focused on making C- records and CDs that they would drive around town and sell, you know, to like, Oh, okay, shit, I got to get my stuff up on MySpace. Or I got to get my stuff on, on CD baby. I got to get my stuff up online, you know? So the, the, the game kind of changed, you know, and the, the bottom sort of fell out from underneath the revenue that you would make on physical sales. And it just became a whole different game. So, you know, I really think that Houston was kind of that last gasp, you know, of, of a really truly localized scene blowing up like that. Yeah. And I think that things are just much more global now. Even Houston, you know, people people don't realize, maybe didn't realize in the beginning Megan was from Houston or that Normani was based in Houston for part of her career and, you know, that or Don Tolliver or, who, you know, whoever you're talking about, you know. So well, I think, and I it's think just a much more global city now. Uh, Lizzo grew up outside of Houston. Lizzo, yeah, exactly. Connection to Houston or Travis Scott. Yep. You know, exactly. So, you know, I don't, I don't, I think people, you know, you can be a global artist and still have those deep Houston connections. But, um, you know, I think that as a kind of a localized scene where you're really focusing on that one city like that, Houston had little flashes of that before, you know, little Troy, you know, had songs that were popping, little, little flip had platinum records before that, you know, ghetto boys of course were massive and Scarface and, and everything like that. But Houston was never focused on as a city. Like, let's see what's going on in Houston. Yeah. That didn't happen until 2005 for me. And for Peter being the two guys that were in the streets documenting stuff, it was great because I got a lot of work, Yeah, <laughs> you I know, bet. cause then all of a sudden Matt Sanzala in particular, I'm sure, you know, was like dumping me. He's like, I can't write all this stuff here. You take this one, you take this one. I was like, okay. Cause it was practice for me, you know? So, so we were definitely, you know, we were well aware that like what was happening was, was really unique. That's, that's awesome. I'm, I keep glancing from you down at the clock cause I know you got to get out of here soon. Um, couple, just more curious questions. Mm-hmm. Um, what, and you touched on this a little bit with your last answer. What do you think is, or even is there necessarily a future of Houston hip hop or do you think it's kind of since 2005 with the internet and everything I know that you've got a lot of Houston artists still you have Toby Wigway you've got like we were talking about before we started Fat Tony um 
I think it was you who turned me on to OMB Bloodbath back in the day after oh, right listening to you in an interview. But you've got Houston artists and several of them who are still very proud of Houston. But none of them really are that Houston sound per se. Do you think that continues? Are there artists that you've seen that still kind of try to keep to that lane? Or, or what do you see for the future of Houston? Hip-hop. I mean, I think that I think there's just not going to be any one Houston sound, but yeah. I think that's great. Yeah, you know, because those artists still identify with Houston and they still cut for Houston. And they still love Houston, and it's a theme in what they do, and it's an influence on what they do. Even if you don't necessarily hear it in the music, you know, but any artist, or you'll hear a little sliver. Like that's one of the things slivers, I like about yeah. Fat Tony. It's like mm-hmm. nothing you've ever heard, but every now and then you hear like this little. Yeah little almost hat tip to yeah, Houston right. in his songs. And then, you know, if you sat down with Fat Tony and went through some songs, he could show you, he'd, say, he'd, be, you know, he'd probably tell you, okay, well, this right here, I was influenced by such and such. Right? Yeah. Right here. And I've had those conversations yeah. with him before. And you might not necessarily hear it as a listener, but he felt it. Yeah. You know? And so, you know, I think, you know, the thing you got to remember about Houston is that like, they don't, you know, the rappers don't move away. For the most part. Yeah. You know, they, they And stick I feel around. like and even yeah. when they have, they come like I think they Slim Thug tried it. Yeah. And he came back. He, back. he didn't Paul, like it. Paul Wall moved away, you know, Scarface moved away for a little while. They all and they and they come back. Um for, for different reasons. You know, they've all got different reasons, they've all got different life paths. But I just think for the most part, you know, you don't see, you know, it's not like an ideal that you streak out for New York or LA. Yeah. You know, that you're running out and trying to get that big record deal or anything like that. You know, people people see that you can still make that career in Houston and have it be a global career, you know, that, that, that has that, that kind of reach. You've got guys in Tokyo and slabs. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And people, people buying screw tapes. I'm sure that, you know, I go, when I go to the screw shop, I buy big handfuls of screw tapes every time. And I always see packages, you know, on the counter there that are going all over the place. Yep. You know, they're, they're sending, they're sending screw tapes everywhere. People are, people are buying them. People come from around the world, you know, they get off a plane and they get a, they, take an Uber straight over to the screw shop and they buy up a bunch of tapes. You know, I remember my first time in the screw shop and it, I mm-hmm. never got to go to the old one. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm disappointed, but the new one, it, it feels special. I don't know. Oh, yeah. It's a very, very, very basic shop. If nobody's ever been there, mm-hmm. cashiers behind a window, they've got some shirts and stuff for sale, but it's very minimal. Yeah. But you go in there and there is an energy. I can't quite. Yeah articulate that's very special like nothing you're really going to experience anywhere else yeah well his cousin runs a shop big bub and big bub um took over the original screw shop you know screw was only around for a year and a half not quite two years um after his shop opened you know it opened in february of 98 and he died in in november of um, of 2000 so what is that maybe that's okay so that's two and a half years, <laughs> but you get the idea, yeah. but he wasn't, it wasn't, he wasn't around that long. And so in the years after he passed, you know, his cousin Shorty Mac worked there and then, you know, big bub picked things up there and, you know, so, and he still runs the shop. Yeah. So it's, I think he's who was my cashier when I went. I'm sure. Yeah. So yeah. it's, it's family owned and operated. Yep. And so it's, it's got that special vibe, you know, he does it from the heart, Yeah. you know, and um, you know, so that's the, that's the headquarters of the culture for sure. Right yeah. there, I get that same feeling. I went to the old shop a lot of times, and I remember what that shop felt like. At and the old shop, did they have the big binder with the oh yeah plastic? Yeah, uh-huh. the old shop with the inside of the old shop was no bigger than this room. Yeah, it was that's tiny. what it looked like. Yeah, and then they had some. They had kind of an L shape that went around it, where they had all the stock of everything, and then they had the 
you know, the counter, the, the, the register was behind the glass the same kind of way. You know, the parking lot was bigger than the entire shop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've got two more questions and I'm going to, I'm going to let you out of here. I really appreciate your time. You bet. Sitting down for this. Um, your books, um, Houston rap tapes in particular, but the DJ screw book, you've interviewed just about anybody who's anybody in, in Houston hip hop. Is there anybody you didn't get a chance to sit down who you really wish you could have? Oh yeah. Um, God, let me think. Yeah, there's plenty. I mean, most of the ones that I would say are the ones who've passed away. Yeah. You know, Pimp C, I got to meet Pimp C once and we talked about doing an interview and I don't know if you heard about the infamous UGK show that wasn't, that was a reunion. It was the, the comeback show after he, he got out of jail. There was a big show in Houston that... Was that the one where, was that, that one the 97.9 The Beat one? No. Oh, okay. oh well, maybe. Uh, it was in... They wanted him to open up for Wayne and Baby and they no, refused... Okay. No, no, this was a different one where... It was in a big club that, uh, it was Club Connections, but I don't know what the actual club was called at that point. But uh, but it was a big show that it was, you know, they're bunching opening acts. And one of the opening acts got in a fight with somebody in the audience during the show and the entire place broke out into just a frenzy. Oh my God. And stuff was being thrown and people freaked out and ran out and the show never happened. Oh, wow. Yeah. But um, but that was the night I met Pimp C before the show and, and his... Petey Wheatstra took me backstage and, and got to meet him and everything. So like, come come back here after the show. We'll do an interview. Never happened. And uh, never happened. I was lucky enough. He died to, that next year. Yeah. Yeah. I was lucky enough to see UGK live once. Wow. Um, right after Pimp got out of jail. Mm-hmm. Um, Up here in Austin? No, it was a car show in Dallas. Oh, cool. But they billed it as Bun B and Pimp. I, I think there was still some beef with Jive. Oh, yeah. Or the promo. Uh-huh. So it was Bun B and Pimp C. And so Bun B comes out and I'm like, oh, they're going to they're going to make them perform separately or whatever. That's a real bummer. Bun did a song or two and then pimp came out and uh-huh. they did it. And you're like, Oh, the whole crowd like there, this was uh, kind of near the height of Mike Jones and all that. Uh-huh. And I think LL Cool J was there a whole bunch of, you know, one of those car show lineups crowd went crazier for UGK than anybody else. I bet. And it was, it was great. Um, two more questions with the, with the interview guest you have, had who are a couple of your just your favorite just the most fun the craziest stories the most you've gleaned from um icy hot from street military tells some stories that are like some people are just really naturally funny mm-hmm. their choice of words their selection of words they did just have a great word selection and his in particular i have to like cover my mouth because i'm laughing because <laughs> i love the way he tells stories um, this him, um, Klondike cat, not a screwed up click guy, but he was a street military guy and SPC and, and new screw. Uh, and he's one of my favorite artists and, and I always enjoy interviewing him. You know, there were some, there were some people that I interviewed for the book who hadn't really ever been interviewed, you know, and, and that was always interesting. Like stick one, he's now he's done an interview with Donnie Houston, but he hadn't, he hadn't really done any kind of interviews at all. I think maybe he did one for the untold story for the documentary, the untold story, but you know, for the most part, he hadn't really told his story. So those are some of my favorites are people who or toe toe is somebody who grew up with, uh, with screw. Is it. that the, is that the big white dude with dreads? No, that's toe down. That's who I'm thinking. Yeah. About. Yeah. No toe is the, is, is famously the first one to ever pay for a screw tape. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, and this is when Screw lived in an apartment complex called Quail Meadows in Houston. There's a whole chapter in the book dedicated to that that segment of his life. Um, but he hadn't really done interviews before either. And so those are the ones that I really appreciate is the, the ones. Just where, the rarity of the... The, the, the rarity. Not the rarity, but I guess hearing those things for the first time. Hearing those stories, but also, um, you know, in a selfish way, um, you know, feeling good that they trusted me enough to talk to me. Yeah. You know, and and also, you know, a lot of times a guy like that can't wait to tell his story. You know, he's been waiting forever. You know, like I've never been interviewed. I've seen all these documentaries and all that stuff. They never come talk to me. And I've definitely heard Charles Washington, who I mentioned earlier, who he kind of had a managerial role with Screw and got him involved. And he didn't manage him, but he got Screw involved with several different projects, like some of his first recording projects and, and got him some gigs and that kind of stuff. And he told me, he said, I, you know, all I know is you're the only one's ever been smart enough to talk to me, <laughs> you know. And so uh, I, I love those kinds of interviews because you really feel like you're, you're really going deep. Yeah. And uh, but, you know, I, they're all fun. They're all great. You know, we're all just talking shop and and, you know, talking history and and, you know, and I rarely go in to interview somebody that I don't already know a decent amount about. Yeah. So I think they can appreciate that and open up and, you know. We, we just have fun with it. My last question for you, um, just personal level, who are your three favorite Houston artists, just for your own personal listening? I won't give you any kind of list in order. No, no, no. But no. I will tell you that um, I loved Mr. 3-2. He was one of my favorite rappers to listen to. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Zero. I, don't, I think Zero can do no wrong. Uh, and I love Klondike Cat. Klondike Cat is a kind of a more unsung, uh, sort of looked over the entire South Park Coalition for that matter. A lot of people kind of overlook them, yeah. but they've got a deep history that goes back further than the Screwed Up Click. You know, these guys, guys started in the in the late nineties. I mean, sorry, late eighties. And um, and Klondike Cat is a really really special artist with that uh, with that collective. Um, so, but you know, I also Fat Pat. You know, who you know, I didn't really get to experience during his lifetime. You know, his record came out right after he was killed, yeah, you know, um, and, uh, you know, and his brother Hawk, I mean, I don't know. They're all so good. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard to list. It's hard to list. <laughs> it's hard to list. I end up making a top three list and you get seven or eight of them. I know that's, that's how it is. Yeah. Um, Lance, thank you so much. When does the book come out? In two months, May 17th. May 17th. Amazon yeah. and all the places you would buy a book? Yeah, or? but I recommend people go to djscrewbook.com. Okay. And I've got a bunch of links to um, independent bookstores, local bookstores, and black-owned bookstores. Love it. And there's links to Amazon and Barnes and Noble also, but I recommend people order them from from local or black-owned businesses um, if they can. This is Black History. I'm a white dude that wrote the book, but um, you know it's it's full of black voices and black history and you know and music history and. Uh, so yeah, it'll. Yeah, I appreciate it'll be it. I'll there. have a link to that in the notes for this episode. Awesome. Well, Lance, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, sir. <laughs> <laughs>